prayers. And uh, I think the Lord, even as He brings couples together, has brought a pastor and a church together. And uh, we praise God for this union that uh, He has worked out. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Let us read God's Word from this particular portion of the Scripture. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, to the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayer and supply the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two of having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. 
And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Amen. Let us uh, come before God again in prayer, and uh, we have to, uh, as a family, add to what was already said concerning our arrival that uh, um, I simply can't believe it uh, that I know what uh, Greg meant, well done, and part of the congregation. Uh, You have far exceeded uh, any of our expectations in how you have received us, and uh, uh, we are so grateful to the Lord and give thanks to God for uh, your uh, kindness hospitality. We uh, look forward uh, to God's uh, blessing uh, all of us as we minister to one another. Let's uh, come before the Lord the request that were brought to to our attention uh, at the beginning. Um, Those that were not uh, prayed for, we will uh, pray for at this time and prepare our hearts to to hear uh, God's word preached. Let's come before the Lord at this time together. Almighty God of grace, the God of infinite wisdom and holiness, the God of all power, we come before you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, confessing that You are the creator and sustainer of all things. Acknowledging that you are the redeemer, not only have you brought into being that first creation, but Lord, you have established and brought into being the new creation. And even now we are enjoying the benefits of that new creation. We praise you, our God for all the wondrous blessings that you have so richly lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, our hearts cannot help but rejoice at your many acts of kindness and goodness to us, your people. Lord, as we reflect back upon the past months and for this congregation the past years and how you have guided and direct them and preserve them and how Lord uh, even in the midst of severe trial and disappointment how you have given them the grace of perseverance so that their faith would not fail Lord we thank you for the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ who prays that our faith would not fail that we would indeed continue 
uh, in that faith. We thank you, Lord God, for uh, the many times that in our own strength and following our own uh, willful ways, we would have departed from you. But Lord, you have brought us back. You will not let us go. And Father, for that we thank you and we praise you. Our Lord God, we do uh, praise you for uh, this uh, congregation and ask, Lord, that your uh, hand of blessing would be upon uh, this uh, ministry. That, Father, as we seek to extend your kingdom uh, here in the Edmonton area, as we seek to see your kingdom extended in British Columbia and throughout the United States as well, and other parts of uh, Canada, oh God, we pray that you would give us a great faith to believe that you are capable and able of reviving these nations, these provinces and states. Oh God, forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for not trusting uh, in your word, but rather leaning upon our own understanding. Oh, Father, we pray that you would encourage us, even this day, how we praise you for this Sabbath. How we thank you and praise you, our God, that one day out of seven you have determined should be set aside exclusively uh, for worshiping you. Gathering as your people, uh, not participating in those those deeds and activities that are lawful on the other six days, but Father, uh, calling ourselves away from those things so that we can give you our undivided attention, Lord, and so that, Father, we are here uh, to, to hear you speak unto us and to uh, bring our families under the hearing of God's Word. Oh, Father, we pray for our covenant children. We ask your blessing upon each family and upon the children represented in each family that, Lord, you would, you would bring each of these children to profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we as parents would be faithful to instruct them, to love them, to lead them and guide them. We pray for the fathers of these families, oh God, that we would be faithful in our ministry, in discipling our wives, and caring for them even as Christ cares for the church and nourishes the church. And that, Father, as our families grow, we know that the church will grow in Christ as well. And that others outside will see a real difference. What a family was meant to be. And this will excite them and draw them into our communion and fellowship. Oh, Lord God, we do bring before you uh, the requests that are upon our hearts and have been spoken even this day. We do pray that you would open doors uh, for Dave, that he might be able to find work as his schedule is slowed down, that you would provide those opportunities. Uh, Father, we are thankful that uh, this is in your hand, that, Father, as we are diligent uh, to do those things that you have called us to do, we're faithful in the little Father, will be faithful in much, and you'll add uh, that added responsibility to us so that we can uh, extend your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you would also uh, be with uh, the 
the elders of this congregation, as has been mentioned. Lord, that you would sustain us with the heavy uh, load, but yet the glorious uh, opportunities that are available to us. We need your strength. Uh, we need your wisdom, Lord. Grant to us the grace of humility in ministering to one another as well as to the flock that you've entrusted to us. We ask you, Heavenly Father, that you would be with uh, Larry and Jennifer, my daughter and son-in-law, Lord, that uh, you would uh, go before them as they prepare to move. We pray, Father, that uh, this would be, in your time, a glorious blessing, and that, Lord, you would use the many gifts that you have granted to Larry, uh, coming from a reform perspective and going in the field of medical ethics, we pray, God, that you would uh, grant him your grace. We also pray for the child that Jenny is, is uh, caring, that, Lord, you would be with the with this child, and that, Father, even while he is yet in his mother's womb, that you would would regenerate him. For, Father, we know that you're able to do so. Oh, Lord, we do pray that you would help them to be able to move without incident uh, to uh, Virginia. Father, we do also pray for our brother Tim and for the, the Bible study that uh, he desires to, to see begun. Uh, there in Grand Prairie, that, Father, you would give him the grace and that, uh, Lord, you would give those who are there the interest a hungry and thirsting for your word. And again, we would see the, the uh, Reformed faith, biblical Christianity spread uh, throughout uh, uh, this province. We, we do, Father, come before you now pleading with you to bless your word. We praise you that uh, your word is indeed truth. And that, Lord, uh, we have the glorious privilege of hearing you speak unto us. To sit at your feet this day. Open our hearts, O God. Deliver us from the scales that are upon our eyes so that we may see the glories of your word. We pray, Father, that you would bless now and hear us, Father, in the request that we have brought to you. For, Father, we have brought them to you not in our own merit, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, pleading only his merit on our behalf. Amen. preaching from Philippians chapter 1 this, this uh, afternoon, so to say this morning, but, uh, this afternoon, and uh, so if you'd like to turn there uh, at this time, we'll be doing a, somewhat of an overview of the book as well as looking at a particular doctrine that comes out of this uh, very important letter of the Apostle Paul. Dear ones, uh, God desires that we be a thankful people. Thankful for all of the good gifts uh, that he has blessed us with. 
Not complaining about the things that we do not have and the wish that we did have, but being content with what God has granted us and wanting uh, to uh, grow in our uh, in the grace of thankfulness and gratefulness uh, to the Lord God. And one of those gifts that God has granted to us by His amazing grace, which I believe that we very often uh, neglect and forget to mention that we are thankful for, is the gift of suffering. Uh, it's very understandable uh, that we would forget uh, such a gift. But if you look with me just for a moment at Philippians 1, verse 29, there we find this passage. The Word of God says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought I heard you say that suffering was a gift. Well, you heard me correctly. That's exactly what I said. Suffering is a gracious gift granted to all who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is not a popular teaching today. In fact, uh, you will turn on the radio or the TV and you'll find that uh, suffering uh, in many people's minds, even professing Christians' minds, is an indication of some kind of curse. But God says that it is a blessing, it is a gift to those who trust in Jesus Christ to have the privilege of suffering with Christ and for Christ. Some of us might be tempted to say something to the effect that, Lord, I'll take the first gift, the gift of faith, but you can keep the second gift and maybe give it to somebody who needs it a little more than I do. You see, suffering, the gift of suffering, is not like uh, picking your favorite flavor of ice cream taking the one that you prefer over the ones that you do not prefer. As we read this particular passage, we find that in fact, God says that the one package of salvation includes both the gift of faith and the gift of suffering. You cannot have one without the other. It is a unified package that God delivers to us. A gracious gift that God gives to us. They are inseparable from one another. And just as the Lord declares that children are a blessed gift from Him, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now that's what God says. But when we come to try and understand what the world is saying about children, we find that the world says that children are not a blessed gift. That in fact they're an intrusion. They're an invasion of our privacy, of our ambitions, and our goals. But who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe the world, or are we going to believe what God says? 
God says they're a gift from Him. Well, likewise, the Lord says that suffering is a gift from Him. Whereas the world would say that suffering is a curse. Satan would want us to believe as Christians that if we're suffering, we must be under some kind of curse and judgment from God. But that is not what the Scripture teaches. Again, I'd like to, before I actually get into the exposition of, of this text, like to give you six preliminary remarks with regard to suffering, a biblical view of suffering. So these would be more general in nature, and then uh, as we come to the close, I'd like to just do a brief exposition of, of this particular passage. But let me give you quickly uh, six preliminary remarks uh, concerning suffering that would help build a foundation so we have a common understanding as to what the Bible has to say with regard to suffering. It's something that's universal. It's something that we all go through, particularly as we've seen in the life of Christians. How are we to understand it? Uh, how are we to bear up under it? How can suffering actually become a blessing in our lives? rather than some kind of hindrance to our Christian maturity and growth. How can we use suffering to become victors in life, rather than victims? First preliminary remark, and all of these are first of all worded, as you'll see in the negative, and then you'll find that uh, there is a biblical uh, response to the negative. Suffering for Christ is not, first of all, a sign of your lack of faith. Suffering for Christ is not a sign of your lack of faith. God says indeed, Philippians 1.29, Suffering for Christ always accompanies true faith. Keep that in mind. Jesus suffered. In fact, the Word of God says that even the Son learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who had no sin, suffered. How much more we who do have sin, who need to be purged, can learn and grow through our suffering. Suffering does not indicate your lack of faith. Secondly, suffering for Christ is not an evidence that the Lord doesn't really love you or care for you. It is not an evidence that God does not really care. On the contrary, God proclaims in a very familiar passage, Romans chapter 8, concerning suffering. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, these wondrous words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. 
Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Quite to the contrary, the Lord says that when we suffer for Him, God is indicating through the whole time of suffering His care and His love for us. Nothing can separate us from God's love, Christ's love. Someone might remark, a critic might say, well, a good Heavenly Father would not allow His child to suffer such things. What kind of a father would allow a Christian to go through that kind of torment? David has a different perspective. Psalm 119, David, a man after God's own heart, announces, It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. David had a different perspective. He wasn't simply looking at the pain that he was going through. David was looking at the result that the suffering brings. Righteousness, holiness, obedience to God, submission to the Lord, dependence upon Him. And David said, it was good. It was good. Thirdly, the third Remark, the preliminary remark. Suffering for Christ does not mean God is not sovereign. Does not mean that God is not in control of your life or mine. That He has abdicated His place upon His throne and now the forces of evil are in control and in charge. Suffering does not indicate that God is not not sovereign. Do you remember all that Joseph went through with his brothers? The various trials that he experienced, being taunted and teased and made fun of, being sold into slavery, being falsely accused, laying with his master's wife, being thrown into prison, being faithful to what God had given him to do in every station of life. And at the end of the whole experience, as Joseph looked back and saw what God had accomplished, this was his assessment and evaluation. You meant by suffering for evil, speaking to his brothers, because when Jacob died, they were shaking in their boots wondering, would this man now that dad was gone, would he pour out all of his vengeance, would he get even with us now? You meant my suffering for evil, but God meant it for good in order to preserve many people alive. You see, we don't need to know, we don't need to be at the final uh, stage, the outcome, so that we can look back 
to see all that God is doing. All we need to know is that throughout the scripture, people are doing that. And they're saying God was working each step of the way and bringing about His good. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1.6, Being confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident that God will complete what He has begun. He's not going to, to do as many of us will do. Grow weary and tired and give up and stop. God is going to bring about His all-wise purposes for us as people. The counterpart to that, of course, in Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, dear ones, when you're going through suffering for Christ, you can either come out of that situation tremendously blessed or tremendously bitter. You can make that decision. You can either come out of that situation humbled before God, having grown in your knowledge of God and how God deals with you as a child of His, or you can come out one of the most cantankerous angry people around. It depends on how you respond in faith to what God is doing in your life. And I've seen people on both sides. I've seen people who are just broken before God. Who have grown by leaps and bounds because of what they have suffered. But I've seen people who you can't even talk to. People who have even turned their backs on God because of what they suffered. You can decide. You don't think it's beyond any of us coming to that place. If it isn't, wasn't for the grace of God in our life, we would all be in that situation where we would just say, I can't tolerate this anymore. I'm turning my back. I'm walking as far as away from it as I possibly can. God is merciful. Fourthly, You're not suffering for Christ, dear ones, when you are ticketed for reckless driving. You're not suffering for Christ, children, when you have mouthed off to your parents very disrespectfully and you get disciplined for that. That's not suffering for Christ. You're not suffering for Christ when you have become angry and bitter at someone, and said something very hurtful to someone. That's not suffering for Christ when someone, therefore, at that point in time says, I don't want to be around that person, who alienates or separates themselves from that person, who has just shown that anger, that, that, that particular uh, bitter speech. That's not suffering for Christ because people don't want to be around you because of the way the ungodly way that we might behave at times. That's not suffering for Christ. For the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 4, which was read earlier also, this is what true suffering for Christ is. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 15, 16, and 19. 
Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Therefore, carefully note what Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Are you suffering according to the will of God? That's not speaking of God, suffering according uh, to God's secret will. I don't think that's the emphasis there. I think he's speaking of suffering according to God's revealed will. In other words, all suffering is a part of God's secret will, whether or not you're suffering as an evildoer or you're suffering as, a, as, a, as one who's following Jesus Christ, because God's secret will encompasses everything that happens in the world. But what he's emphasizing here is suffering according to the revealed will of God and what God says a Christian should be doing in every situation and circumstance of life. If you're being godly, if you're standing for the truth, you're speaking the truth in love, then, if you suffer on account of that, he says, commit your soul to him in doing good. Let God take care of for the final result. You do what's right. You do what God calls you to do. And then leave it in His hands. Fifthly, your suffering for Christ does not prove that Christ did not suffer enough for your sin. And so you must, in some way, fill up the rest of his sufferings that are still lacking for your sin. In other words, your suffering is not redemptive in nature. You are not suffering in order to become more acceptable before God. You cannot become more acceptable in God's sight than through the righteousness of Jesus Christ with which you're clothed through justification. And so your suffering does not add to your redemption. It does not add to the atonement which Christ has completed in full. When Christ said, it is finished, it is paid in full, the debt is paid. Everything that was needed to accomplish your salvation was fulfilled upon the cross and through his resurrection. And so we do not add to our salvation by our suffering, as is taught in the Roman Catholic Church. Perhaps, uh, maybe not specifically stated in that way, but uh, in practice, maybe in other uh, so-called Christian groups. It does not have redemptive value, it has sanctifying value. God uses our suffering to bring about godliness, righteousness, holiness, the fruit of the Spirit, patience, all of those fruit in our life. Your suffering, dear ones, is a mighty assurance that you belong to Jesus Christ. Many times we are looking for evidences of, of our salvation, of our faith. Looking for that assurance. Praying, Lord, show me. Demonstrate to me that I belong to you. 
Well, dear ones, there's not a greater demonstration that you belong to Jesus Christ than that you are suffering for Jesus Christ. You are suffering with Christ because that indicates you are in union with Jesus Christ as the branch is in union with the vine and that the, the life of the, of the uh, vine flows very naturally into the branches so that fruit, fruit comes forth. So we who have been united to Jesus Christ We've been united not only to Him and His glory, but we've been united to Him and His sufferings. This is a great proof and evidence that you belong to Jesus Christ if you are suffering for Him. But it does not add to our salvation. And finally, the last remark I want you to mention before we get into the text itself is this. Suffering for Christ is not limited to persecution and opposition from non-Christians. I want you to have a more broad view of what suffering for Christ involves because we may say, I've never been in prison with Christ. Uh, I've never been uh, slugged in the jaw uh, for Christ because I was proclaiming the truth and somebody just couldn't tolerate it and, 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 and beat me up or something like that. I, I've never experienced what the disciples and the apostles went through who were uh, beaten, imprisoned, spoken falsely of and, and as they were. How do I suffer for Christ, therefore? Well, I'd like for you to see that there are all kinds of ways in which we suffer for Jesus Christ. One of those ways is physically suffering. Physical suffering, I believe, can fall into this category. Many times falls into the category of suffering for Christ. Let me explain. When Job had his health taken from him, he didn't know, at least we're not told, he was privy to what was going on behind the scenes. And actually what had happened, Satan had appeared before God and said, uh, God said, have you noticed my servant Job? How righteous he is in his generation, how he walks blameless before me. Satan said, he only does so, God, because you put a hedge around him. But take away that hedge. Let me at it, and he will curse you to, his, to, his, to your face. And so God did allow Satan to take Job's health from him. But why was he suffering? He was suffering for Christ. He's suffering on behalf because he was godly, because he had taken a stand for righteousness, he had fed the needy. He prayed nightly uh, for his family. He was a great leader in his community. God had mightily blessed him, but he was suffering for Christ through the loss of his health. Now, maybe we haven't thought of that as suffering for Christ. If there is not some particular sin that someone can point out to us that we're living in some sin and thereby can call it God's discipline in our lives, as in the case of the Corinthians, because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. God brought weakness into their bodies and even took some of them home to be with himself. And we cannot identify that after uh, seriously calling upon God to reveal to us our sins, our motives, what is in our heart, 
and asking others, is there some sin you see me living in? And yet our health has been depleted. And I would submit to you that you are suffering for Jesus Christ and the loss of your health. Paul, the thorn in the flesh, is another uh, example of the same uh, kind of messenger of Satan uh, sent to him. The loss of family members, the death of loved ones, can be suffering for Jesus Christ as they are removed from us. Again, Job is a classic example. Why were his family members taken from him? In that case, again, he was suffering for Jesus Christ. The loss of material possessions can also be a case of suffering for Christ. Job, again, Hebrews chapter 10. Consider what the scripture says here concerning the loss of material possessions and how this was an illustration and evidence that they had been suffering for Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. The rejection by family members can be a form of suffering for Jesus Christ. When we take a stand and we speak the truth in love, when we come to our family members and we believe that uh, there's something we need to say, it can be in our immediate family, it can be outside in our extended family, but when we take a stand for, for righteousness in a way which is uh, in keeping with the, the love of Christ. And we thereby experience that alienation that comes from that. Jesus says that he came not to bring peace, but a sword in families. That even members of the family would find that they were enemies with one another because of Christ, because of the stand that we take. Not being haughty, not being proud, not trying to push people outside the kingdom, but simply expressing what God says. Being faithful to the Lord. And saying, I can't do that. I can't do that on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day uh, is holy. I cannot do that. Many other examples, but but that can also be, I think, an example of suffering for Christ. All Christians will not, in other words, suffer in the same way, but all Christians will suffer for Jesus Christ. Let's uh, consider briefly then the uh, text before us in Philippians chapter one. Just particular situation. The letter of Philippians is all about finding our joy and our contentment in Christ, even in the midst of suffering. You'll find the word rejoice 
I did not count, but many times that seems to be the key word that comes out in the book of Philippians, rejoice. What does rejoice mean? It means find your joy and your contentment in God and in God alone. Don't find your joy and contentment in the circumstances around you because those can change. Don't even find your joy, your ultimate joy and contentment in your family. Ultimately, find your joy and your contentment in God and enjoy the blessings that He has given to you. Because if you find your joy in God, you'll find that uh, you will always be content. You'll find that uh, no, no one or no, no, nothing nor no one can rob you of that contentment. Because God does not change. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that's what this book is all about. Finding your joy in God. And Paul was an expert on suffering. Uh, If we want to look at uh, an example of one who has suffered for Jesus Christ, there's no better example to look at regard to suffering. And yet, this book is, is filled with rejoicing. What did he know that we oftentimes don't seem to to know or to live out in our own lives? Well, the key was simply this. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, very, very simple, but it's become a theme of my life. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, Paul couldn't lose. If his life was Jesus, if his life was Jesus Christ, it didn't matter what anybody did to him. His life was completely united with Christ. He could be beaten, he could be uh, stoned, left for dead, he could be shipwrecked, he could be chased like wild animal, he could be forsaken by friends and family members. But it didn't make any difference. Because his life was Christ. His life wasn't tied up with those circumstances. And if they even took his life and killed him, which he was martyred for the faith, he only went to be with him who was his life. And so that became great gain to him. Not a loss. You see, if there's anything else in life that is your life, other than Jesus Christ, you leave your life behind when you die. And so you'll either be trying to hold on to it tenaciously, trying to guard, keep it so that you won't lose it. You'll live in fear of losing that which is your life. But if Jesus Christ is your life, there's never any fear of losing Christ. It changes your whole perspective on living. It changes your whole perspective on, on suffering. When Christ is your life. That was false life. And so Paul, as a result of that particular perspective, was not choking on the poison of self-pity as he went through his suffering. And many of us do literally choke on self-pity when we suffer. Woe is me. Won't you feel sorry for me? Look at what I'm going through. Lord, I must be the only one 
in all the world who has ever gone through this kind of suffering. We smile because we know we're very much like that. It's very much the case in, in my life and yours as well. And only by the grace of God do we escape that kind of vain living. Paul knew that in order for him to graduate to glory 201, he first had to take the prerequisite course of suffering 101. He couldn't advance to glory until he had suffered with Christ. He was not ready to be exalted and glorified until he learned to suffer. And so his prayer was, Lord, not only that I might know the power of your resurrection, but that I might also know the fellowship of your sufferings. Philippians 3.10 What a prayer. To know the fellowship, communion, identification with what Christ went through as much as we can finitely do so. Do you want to know Christ that well? Not only the power of His resurrection, do you want to know Christ and even His sufferings? That's when, really, rubber meets the road. So many of us want to know the power. How many of us want to experience what Christ went through? The apostles went through. But through that suffering comes great victory. Through that suffering comes glory, exaltation, the expansion of the kingdom of Christ, comes the maturity within our own lives. As we even look at this particular letter, Paul was in prison. He was writing from prison, and as we've already note, noted in chapter 1, he wasn't quite sure, though he had a certain uh, expectation that he would probably be delivered. But he wasn't quite sure. He may even face death in the very near future. But even with that possible prospect, uh, we find this theme of rejoicing in Christ. I may have mentioned this last time that I was here, but I want you, if it bears repeating, even if I did mention it. Beloved, never let us think that we are the only ones going through whatever we're going through. Never fall into the trap of thinking, I'm the only one who's experiencing that. That completely contradicts what God says in His Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the Word of God teaches very clearly We'll have to call God a liar at this point if we disagree. No temptation, that word can also be translated trial, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Do not fall into the trap of thinking you're the only one who's going through suffering or going through the degree of suffering. We all suffer. But we suffer in various ways. It is not all the same kind of suffering, but it is all suffering for Jesus Christ. You'll find that you will be paralyzed with self-pity if you get into that particular trap. You will not be effective in the kingdom of Christ. 
The way to overcome that kind of mentality is to look to God and say, God, what are you teaching me through this? What can I learn through this? How will your kingdom be prospered and grow through what I'm suffering right now? Or through what my daughter or my son is suffering right now? Or whomever. That should be our perspective. It was Paul's. But even in a situation in which Paul was facing uh, the prospect of death, he was not thinking of himself. In fact, we find in this particular passage that uh, verses 27 through 30, that he's thinking of others. Even with the prospect of his own death, he's not saying, woe is me. Won't you feel sorry for me? I might die. Look what you would lose. No, he's thinking of others. He's thinking of how to build them up and how to encourage them in the faith. And so, in closing, let me leave you with three exhortations that come out of these four verses. Three exhortations in facing suffering. First exhortation Paul gives in verse 27 is stand as one when you face suffering. Stand as one. Don't try and stand all by yourself when you face suffering. We need one another. Paul says in verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm together. Satan's strategy has always been divide and conquer. Separate this one from the rest of the flock. And I will, Satan speaking, and I will paralyze him. I will make him ineffective. I will cast him into despair and discouragement so that he will be completely useless in the kingdom of God. You see, we don't, I know the tendency when we're suffering, we don't want to be around others. I know that. That's our human nature. We want to pull back. But God says, rather than pulling back, doing that which is natural, do that which is supernatural. By the grace of God, fellowship and worship regularly with God's people. Avail yourself of the means of God's grace. The preaching of His Word, the administration of His sacraments, the fellowship of His people. You're probably familiar as well with what Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says with regard to this whole issue of standing beside or beside or only by yourself. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. No one. That's a hopeless situation, isn't it? No one to help him out. I don't want to be in that situation, though I may feel like it at times, withdrawing because of what I'm going through. But God says, do not do so. Stand as one when you face suffering. We need one another. We can pray for one another and encourage one another. Secondly, the second exhortation when you face suffering is found in verse 28. And it has two parts. Verse 28 says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. 
This is the exhortation. Don't fear your enemies. Don't fear your enemies. Fear God. Don't fear your visible enemies. Don't fear the invisible enemies. Fear God. For here we find in this particular passage that that God says to the Apostle Paul, suffering for Christ is a sign of destruction to your enemies. That's why you shouldn't fear them, because as you suffer, as they bring that suffering, the persecution upon you, whether it's it's the the emissaries of the evil one, uh, the the devils and demons uh, that are throughout the world, or whether it's uh, uh, your next door neighbor. Uh, God says, don't fear the enemy. Because as they persecute you, as Paul found out, they're persecuting Jesus Christ. Because again, we are united to Christ. And when you persecute the judge and the creator of the world, you face imminent destruction. So, Paul says, don't fear them because your suffering is a sign of their destruction. That's quite interesting. Furthermore, he says, don't fear your adversaries because your suffering is a sign of your own salvation. It indicates that you are suffering with Christ, therefore you will be glorified with Christ. As I said earlier, it is an indication and evidence of your union with Jesus Christ. It's one of those infallible assurances that I believe the confession of faith draws our attention to. That we can seek great comfort from by means of the Spirit. And the third exhortation that comes to us is found in verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. When you face persecution, when you face suffering, dear ones, the third exhortation is this. Believe God and his word that suffering for Christ is a gift from God. Turn your attention to the promises of God, to the truth of God's word, rather than leaning upon your own feelings and your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Do not depend upon your own evaluation. Go to the Word of God to do a reality check. Believe God that suffering is not a curse when it comes to suffering for Christ, but it is a great blessing and it's a gift from God. J. Adams puts it this way. When we're suffering... God is up to something good. When we're suffering for Christ, God is up to something good. Not up to something evil. Not up to something bad, but up to something good. 
In conclusion, joy will never be found in asking that ominous question, why? Why, why, why? You'll never find peace and contentment by asking why. And you know, furthermore, if God did actually tell us why, knowing our natures, the fact that we don't like going through pain, we would second-guess what God was going to do anyway. Even if we knew why. And so, it really boils down again to simply trusting in a sovereign, benevolent, gracious God. Do we believe God will be taken at His word that suffering is for our benefit? Or will we simply lean upon our own understanding? And so we've seen, just to summarize, that these are some of the benefits from suffering. Suffering reveals our continual need of God. It creates within us a dependence upon God. Suffering reveals God's power, which is made perfect in the midst of our weakness, so that when we are victors through the suffering, we cannot take any credit or any glory and say, look at me, because we know our weakness. It was God and God alone who brought us through that situation. So God alone receives credit and glory. And suffering reveals, as we said, that we truly belong to Jesus Christ. And finally, suffering reveals the hope of our glory that lies ahead, that our suffering is for a time, and that there is glory that yet remains, when there will be no longer any suffering when there will no longer be any persecution, no torment, inflictions of the body, uh, no crushed spirit over the rejection of friends and family members. Glory lies ahead. Praise God. Suffering under Hitler's bombing of London day after day month after month could have become very discouraging to those inhabitants of London they could have considered a great shame to have to suffer under those circumstances But rather, they chose to consider their suffering as a great badge, as it were, of honor. Because they knew who their enemy was. They knew who was out to destroy them. And so if they were deprived temporarily of food, clothing, there was rationing, if they lost loved ones, because they knew the enemy, because they knew why they were suffering. They were suffering because they were the enemies of Hitler. It made their suffering bearable and endurable. Well, how much more, dear How much more do we have the Word of God that our suffering is a badge of honor? Nothing to be ashamed of, but everything to glory in. 
We don't run to suffering and say, oh, I just can't wait to get to the next situation in which I'm suffering. No, God says, flee persecution. You don't run to it as many people throughout church history thought they would be immediately transported into heaven if they uh, uh, were martyred. Uh, but if you weren't martyred, you had to you know, take a longer route to, to get there. But uh, rather uh, than running to the suffering, we leave that in God's hands. We let God bring the suffering. If we can avoid uh, persecution, we should seek to avoid it. But, uh, but it was a badge of honor. It should be for us. And so, I can't remember whether I, again, the amnesia setting in, senility, what, what the problem is. But I can't even remember if I gave you this brief little uh, illustration. But I'll do it again because I think it really bears repeating. Uh, one of the men that God used, I think, at that time was the Prime Minister Winston Churchill and a very well-known orator, but very fluent in the language, uh, was capable of keeping people uh, suspended on the uh, edges of their seats uh, for a long period of time because of his oratorical skills. And yet, in one particular situation, uh, he was called to encourage, uh, to give a speech, and to encourage uh, the people of London uh, because uh, he did not want uh, the war to be lost at that level. And uh, he got up uh, to deliver his speech and this was the sum of his speech, literally. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And that's what God calls you to do. So never, ever give up. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the grace you have granted to us and the blessing that we have to suffer for Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, tear from our eyes this day the scales that are naturally upon them so that we can see the truth which you have given to us today. Oh Father, we are weak, we are frail. We are misled by our own understanding, by the traditions and the teachings of men, the philosophies of men. But, oh God, we will not find truth there. I pray, Father, that you will, will give to us a generous portion of your spirit to understand and to apply this valuable truth in your word today, so that our lives will indeed be different from those around us. So that others will stand back in awe and amazement, wondering how can this person have such an attitude when he's going through or when she's going through so much. And let that be a powerful testimony of what God can accomplish in the life of one who is submitted to Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have already won the victory. That Jesus Christ is the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that we are even now reigning with him. That doesn't mean we reign apart from suffering. We reign through suffering. And that is really where the victory is seen the greatest. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant to us that grace 
that you would multiply your people throughout the world who have an understanding of these truths so that we can go forth and not become discouraged when we meet one hurdle or one setback, but that we can move forward with confidence that God is not against us, that God is for us, even in the midst of our suffering. For Christ's sake, amen. Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. 
there is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.